0: Good morning, everyone. Hymn four hundred twenty six. Four hundred twenty six, stanzas one through three. When I survey the wondrous cross On which the Prince of glory died, My richest gain I count but lost, and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, so, such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay. The congregation at prayer won second prize in a beauty contest because she got a facelift. That's just a joke. It looks different. So you'll notice that it looks slightly different. The biggest change is back in the prayers. So instead of just having names, now you have um, a little more information so you know who you're praying for. Could someone turn the lights? These outside lights on? Half of the room is in darkness. (laughs) That's <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, the verse of the week is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. Thanks. <laughs> you just can't please all the people, can you? Um, let's speak this together, Matthew 5, 37. But let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Uh, Okay. Do you know what the immediate context of these words is? Do you remember what's happening at this point in Matthew chapter 5? It's after the Beatitudes. And then there is the Uh, condemnation from Jesus. He speaks to the Pharisees and he says things like this. "Uh, You have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anyone who thinks ill of his brother in his heart has murdered his brother. You have heard it said, do not uh, divorce, but I tell you, uh, this, you have heard it said, and then this is in there, you have said, or you have heard it said, make sure that you're, you hold fast to the oath that you swear in the name of the Lord. Okay? So that's the immediate context of this, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. You're, you're not supposed to be taking out oaths in the name of the Lord, and also, you really don't need to be taking out oaths to your brother in your own name either. In fact, uh, St. John Chrysostom says, taking out oaths in your own name is itself an act of idolatry because you have raised yourself up to some position where somehow you have enough authority to be able to to swear by your own name. Um, Does this mean that if you go to court and somehow you're called as a witness and they say... Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that you get to say, well, I'm not allowed to make an oath, so I claim religious exemption from this oath? You can try it. You can try it. (laughs) You probably wouldn't make it past the, the beginning stages there. Sort of like how the pastor can get out of jury duty because he says, well, I can't really be impartial because I'm in the job of forgiving people, so I don't know that I'm going to be good for you. (laughs) Right? Uh, No, you you can still swear. You give your word to tell the truth because it is asked of you in that setting. Even Jesus was under oath, if you recall, during his trial before Pilate. He was under oath, and he gave testimony under oath. Um, This is really not referring to that so much as it is referring to, like, your general use. So, like, saying, well, doggone it, I swear by the grave of my mother. Well, that sort of defiles the name and the memory of your mother. So think about, then, what it does when you swear by the name of the Lord. And there's one really, really good example from the Old Testament. And if you are a midweek student, this is the thing we just Talked about on Wednesday, one judge from Israel in the Old Testament who is known and sort of the picture of uh, not letting yes be yes and not letting no be no. Do you know who it is? Midweek students, I, we just talked about this. You, you know who this is. Let your wisdom shine forth. Do you remember? He has a funny-sounding name. His name is Jephthah. Did you learn about Jephthah in Sunday school? Do you remember that? Jephthah is the man who was kicked out of Israel by his brothers and by the elders because he was only their half-brother. His father had relations with a harlot and Jephthah was the offspring. So they kicked him out and he became a pirate. And then uh, Israel was having trouble with their neighbors, the Ammonites, so they called Jephthah back to lead their army. And the Lord said, hey, don't worry, I'll take care of you. And he said, hmm, okay, but... If you give me victory, I will sacrifice to you the first thing that walks out of my house when I come home victorious. And what is the first thing that walks out of his house? Pardon me? Well, close. It's his daughter. His only daughter. Okay? He didn't need to make that oath. The Lord had already told him he was going to be victorious. It's a bad oath, but it's also bad because he misuses the name of the Lord because his yes is not yes and his no is not no. He swears an oath by the name of the Lord, which is not what the name of the Lord is given to you uh, for. That's not the purpose of the name. Whatever is more than these, whatever is more than just saying yes, yes, no, no, which is to say swearing by, swearing on my mother's grave, or uh, swearing by the name of the Lord in particular, really is swearing by the name of the Lord. It's of the devil. Why is it of the, oh, of the evil one, excuse me. Which, just as an aside, the evil one, ponerion, um, that's actually the word in the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer doesn't say deliver us from evil, it says deliver us from the evil one which is a sort of a fine distinction because evil comes from the evil one, but it's kind of just interesting. So who, uh, why is this from the evil one? And think about what I said about swearing by your own name. What's bad about swearing by your own name according to John Chrysostom? It is idolatry as you puff yourself up when you do it. Vanity, pride, and idolatry. So swearing falsely by the name of the Lord really is the same thing. It's of the evil one. Because it is puffing yourself up to a position of being, you know, asserting that you have authority and power over the name, but also, uh, it says that you are the one who determines how the name is used which you aren't. You're given a privilege in having the name and being able to use it, but there are ways that the name is to be used and ways that it is not to be used. Okay, let's speak this again. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Good. Uh, What is the second commandment? You shall not use the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not curse, swear, use satanic arts, lie, or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks. Yes, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, which is essentially this. Hey, let your yes be yes and your no be no. My name's given to you, and that's a great privilege to you, but it's, this is how it's given to you and why it's given to you. Um, don't use it apart from that. You know, like Uncle Ben said, with great power comes great responsibility. That's a Spider-Man reference. Uh, we should fear and love God so that we do not curse, which is... Using the name of the Lord or calling upon God to invoke harm upon another person. To curse somebody. Um, and, and curses are real. So like, you know, voodoo and all of that stuff. Um, some of that really does actually work. There's, uh, it is kind of something, you know, you don't have to walk around being afraid of it in your day-to-day life, but there is more that goes on beyond your understanding or beyond the realm of human perception than you would realize. Um, so curses do take place, but specifically in this sense, you're not, to curse at, you're not to curse at all. Never call down a curse upon somebody, but most especially, not to curse by the name of the Lord. By the name of the Lord, I smite thee. Don't call upon God to inflict harm upon somebody else. That is a misuse of the name. You're not to swear, that's this, by the name of the Lord. You're not to use satanic arts by the name of the Lord. I've told you about this before. The best example of this is from some of the old medieval grimoires and spell books. You want to make a woman fall in love with you, you find a toad at midnight on the first night of the month, and then you, uh, you cut it up and bury it and let it ferment. And then at The full moon, you come and you dig it back up and you bless it with holy water and then draw a mark and then uh, say this incantation and the demon comes up and then you say, demon, I bind you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now do what I say and make that woman fall in love with me. that's, that's real. It's, uh, these spells that say, well, call upon the demon, but then make sure that you tell it that you're, you've got the name of Jesus because then, it'll, then then you have power over it and it'll listen to you and it'll do what you say. No, you're not supposed to use say, the, the, the name of the Lord for satanic arts. And you're not to lie or to deceive by the name of the Lord. Um, but instead, as always, there's, the, there's the, what you are not to do and what you are to do. What, how is the name of the Lord to be used? Well... It is to be used primarily for you to call upon God. If you have his name, you have his ear. So you call upon his name in how many troubles? Every trouble. How often should you call upon him? Essentially, according to this explanation, all the time. There really should never be a time when you aren't somehow calling upon the Lord. Even if you're walking down the street, running your errands, and you're saying to yourself, "Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner." Amen. That's a really nice discipline, by the way, to try and a nice habit and a nice discipline to try and form, instead of having your mind wander and think about all kinds of other things. And especially in the in the uh, modern culture, when your mind is so prone to worry about things worrying about what you saw on the news, worrying about what you read on Facebook, what you, uh, worrying about what you read on Twitter. God help you if you are people who have Twitter, my word. Uh, worrying about all of this stuff, and you walk down the street, and all that you do is worry and stress. And it's kind of a nice discipline. Maybe I'll challenge you this Lent if you find yourself walking around worrying all the time. Switch, com- switch gears completely, and just walk down and pray. Have, have your energy be spent uh, focusing on prayer and less on your worry. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Amen. And you'll find that it actually does wonders for you when that is what you focus on instead of everything around you. And, I mean, don't be oblivious, but you know what I mean. So, call upon the Lord in every time of trouble. Pray. What's the difference between calling in trouble, praise and giving thanks, and prayer. Pray. Well, in some sense, pray constitutes all of this, but specifically, prayer is the holy conversation between God and His children. It's this holy conversation. Um, you, in your prayers, you can be angry with God. If you're angry with Him, then be angry with Him. If you're upset, be upset. If you're happy, be happy. If you're curious, be curious. In, you have that privilege. It's okay to go to the Lord and lament. It's okay to go to the Lord and be angry and say I don't understand what's going on. Why are you letting this happen? It's okay to do that. You don't have to you don't have to sit back and be afraid that well, I'm not allowed to be angry at God if I'm angry at him. You know, I might not make it to tomorrow. Well, you might not make it to tomorrow anyway. All right? So, prayer, that's your holy conversation. Praise is the response to the work that God does for you. And kind of the response to who God is. You praise God because He is wonderful. You praise Him because of His mighty acts. You praise Him for who He is. And give thanks. Another response to the things that God does. A very specific thing. Okay, any questions about this? Okay, to Sunday school. We're a little late, I apologize. Yes, sir? Sure, yes. I I don't know, actually. Uh, I've not been in the courtroom, (laughs) which is probably good. -hmm that him, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think they use the old furry mason type of thing when people would get up on the sand and they had to take their own. Am I making me Yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I don't know, actually. I don't know. I, if they still use it, I'm sure that there's a push not to. And maybe somebody knows better than I do. I'm, I'm sure someone knows better than I do on that. But... Um, it seems like everywhere nowadays there's a push to get God out of wherever it is, wherever he is. So, um, I don't know. If they do, then I'm sure there's a push to get, it, get rid of it. And if they don't, then it's probably because there was a push to get rid of it. Um, here's the thing. You said something. You said you got to be careful what you say. <laughs> And I'm going to hop on a hobby horse for a second. You Christians, you are in an unenviable position. And it is unenviable because it is uncomfortable and because it is painful. Because the culture around you is not one that is Christian anymore and hasn't really been for some time. But I think in the recent years we have seen the beast rear its head and we are starting to see the culture around us for what it really is. You are starting to see what the culture really demands, what it really wants. And you are in an unenviable position because you are not called to be careful about what you say. And it's going to cause harm for you. I rejoice that this community is what it is. Because it is so rare to find a community where people have their doggone heads screwed on the right way. And where they still have an ounce of common sense and common decency and still have the guts to stand up and call a spade a spade. But communities like this are shrinking and they are dying and they are slowly being swallowed up by the spirit of the age. And when the spirit gulps up the rest of those dregs, the only thing that will be left is the church. And this little church, friends, and I'm not talking about this congregation, I'm talking about this little remnant in the United States, is going to be so buffeted and torn. But my point is that you are not called to be careful about what you say. Don't run around trying to cause offense. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't run around like some kind of boor and, uh, and seek to cause harm and offense to people by what you say. Certainly not. But when it comes to your confession Is a man a woman and is a woman a man? No. What your confession is must remain. And I don't care what kind of legislation goes through the House or the Senate or comes through and I don't care what kind of name they use to disguise it like equality. You are not called to be careful about how you talk. You are not called to be careful about what you say. Your confession will be your confession. Or it won't be. Life is not black and white. Theology is not black and white. Or rarely. Most of the time it's various shades of gray. And there's only slivers of black and white on either side of the line this thick line of gray. But this is one occasion, one rare occasion, when the line is drawn and it is black and white. Your confession is the confession of the church or it isn't. And if it is, then be bold. So take heart, even as you are in this unenviable position, because things are going to get worse. But it doesn't matter as nothing is new. Okay, This is there. That's off my chest. All right. Here's the plan. We're going to try and finish up this star business. Next week is a hymn week. And that hymn is real nice. (laughs) Hey. <laughs> well, I tell you what, <laughs> it's a real old one, so not ju- I'm not the only one who's thought it's good enough to keep passing down through the generations, okay. but of course, you. you'll have to be the judge. <laughs> I, th- I think you're one of the harshest critics, so we'll, <laughs> we'll see what, you, what, your, uh, what your judgment is, okay? So, so next week's a hymn week. We'll start something new after that, God willing. <laughs> um, today, we, have to, we don't have as much time because we have to end slightly early on the star topic, and here's why. Daryl Bierman is ill, and, and he has been ill for a, a little while. Uh, he wasn't at church on Wednesday. As you noticed, we did the service a cappella. Well, he's also not going to be here today. So the service today will be a cappella. And um, this, is all, this is all in jest what I'm about to say here because um, it's more important to me that Daryl get better than that he show up to play the organ. But of course, he chose the Sunday when we have a hymn that people don't know to not be here. <laughs> so, uh, So what we're going to do is, you all... You lucky, lucky people! Your prize for coming to Bible class is that you get to be the choir. Uh, Pardon me? I could, but I'm not going to. And here's two reasons, Marla. Two reasons why I'm not going to. One, because this is one of my most favorite hymns of all time, of all time, and. We hardly ever sing it, and there's a reason that we... I think we've only ever done it one other time. And I don't know that it went over all that well the last time we did it, because people didn't know it. But the second reason is because it's the only one that fits as well with the day. Uh, And there's a very specific reason why it was chosen for this very specific day, so I don't want to just kind of phone it in and pick something else just to replace it. So what we're going to do instead... (laughs) Well... They, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole day preaches. So what we're going to do is, um, there's, it's an insert in your bulletin, because it's in the hymnal, but it isn't in the hymnal. It's only in the organ's hymnal, not in the one in the pew. There's like 20 extra hymns, by the way. Maybe 15, 20 extra hymns that aren't in this book, but are technically still in the LSB, and only the organ book has them. So, I guess they expect for you to just know them. Um, So, what we're gonna do is I'll teach this melody to you and we'll just sing it here so that when I blow the pitch pipe and start, it's not just me and silence. (laughs) So, everybody here will know it so that when we start, uh, you all can sing boldly and bolster everyone else and and, uh, encourage your neighbors. Here's the other thing, then, that you're going to have to do. There's no opening hymn. There's no closing hymn because we're in Lent. So this hymn is the office hymn. just right after the readings and the creed. So I'll sit down and we'll do that. And I can lead that. But there's three other hymns which are distribution hymns that I cannot lead. And I will, give, I will play a pitch for those. But I need you to sing those. And listen... I don't care if you're walking up to the altar. Bring your hymnal. Bring your hymnal and sing right there at the rail. I mean, you're allowed to do that anyway, by the way. If, you, if, you ever are, if you're singing a hymn and you want to keep singing it, come up, just bring your book. Come up. There's no rule that says that when it's time for communion, you have to go, oh. OK, you can keep it. You can keep singing it. But. Uh, I need help. This is my plea to you uh, to bolst- help bolster the hymns. Okay, they're all—all all of those hymns are hymns that you know, so those aren't bad. But with the last few minutes of this class, I'll teach you—I'll teach you that other one so that you can sing it. It's not hard. I promise you, it's not hard. Pastor, I think it would be helpful when we're doing one of these that we don't know. Yep. You leave your mind on. I'm going to today. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Marla. (laughs) I read your mind. Now, really, I was planning it this morning, and I thought, I know what Marla's going (laughs) to say. The devil's advocate in my head now speaks with your voice. Terrible. (laughs) I've tried, and I can't get it to stop. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I'm going to I'll keep my mic on f- for that just to help. I did that on Wednesday too for like the Magnificat, which is a little harder to sing. So, and you know, for as long as Daryl's out, then we just keep doing it a cappella. I thought it was kind of nice, honestly. I thought it was kind of nice just hearing people sing. So, I like it. Maybe other people don't. <laughs> All right. Matthew chapter 2. We got to finish this up Oh boy, you're going to have so much fun. So many cool things today. Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to jump a little bit, so you know, don't get too comfortable in Matthew. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Herod, that's Herod the Great, which we talked about last week. Behold, wise men, the Magi, from the east, From the where? Yes, good. Came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. In the where? And have come to worship him. Why am I being silly and having you repeat that cardinal direction? Did you pick up on it? This is something people don't see. Yes, exactly, because they're traveling west. To get to Jerusalem from the east means that you have to travel west. So why are they traveling west if they see the star in the east? Did you ever think about that? Mm, I told you we were going to have fun today. (laughs) I love this stuff so much. This is, yeah, if you you love this stuff, go to the seminary. Go be a pastor, because then you get to spend the rest of your life talking about this stuff, and it's so much fun. It's better than going to a ball game or a movie. Um, It's translated in the east. We saw his star in the east. Now, there's a few ways you can take that. Um, Interpretation-wise, you can say, we were in the east and we saw his star. So it's a matter of syntax, then, if you just rearrange it slightly. We were, we from the east saw his star, or we saw his star as we were in the east and we went. That's one way to take it. I don't like that one as much. It's fine. It's perfectly fine. Um, My only objection to it is just um, my personal opinion. (laughs) But there's nothing wrong with it. Um, And the reason why my personal opinion doesn't like it is because I think there's a better way to translate it. En-anatole is the Greek. N means, like, in. Okay. You know this verse. You don't, I don't need to keep this up here. You learned it by heart already. Okay. and Don't worry, I am spelling it correctly. <laughs> Ever since you said that, now it sticks in my head. I gotta say, well, huh, somehow I need to make sure they know that I actually am spelling this right. <laughs> okay. N Anatole. I think that this is where that goes. The accents were never my strong suit. Uh, Okay, so this is like in sometimes into, but not always. Um with, sometimes, at, sometimes, okay? So it's just one of those prepositions, and contextually it can mean some different things. Anatole, this is often translated east, but that's not the only way that it can be translated, and the reason why is because anatole doesn't really mean in the east. It really means something like Where the sun rises. Now, we translate it as east because where does the sun rise? In the east. east. Well, that's where the sun rises, so we'll just shorten it up and mean east. But, really, in this context, we saw his star, En Anatole. I think, this is personal opinion, if you're translating, everybody always has their own opinion. That's why the joke is always that What's the only translation of the Bible you can really trust? Your own. <laughs> I told it was a joke. No, you were the only one that laughed. Every day, it's a joke. He's a He's a funny guy. Don't worry. I'll be here all week. Okay. So uh, the way that I would it, translate this uh, is I would. Oh, whoops! Just doing it all wrong. I know. Look at that. Uh, that's my one of three for today. <laughs> All right, here. Uh, can you even can you see this? Is that too low? Okay. Pastor, are you pronouncing the, what I would call a V as an like N? Are you saying Anna the way? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a new new. Okay. new is the name of the letter. So it looks like a V, but it's a Greek N. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Gotta erase this. My lines are. Do they make whiteboards that have, like, penmanship lines on them? You know, like the old days when you with the little dotted lines? That would be nice. At its... Okay. This is how I would translate it. Uh, we saw his star at its rising, which is kind of an, a neat little way to say it, uh, because they say, well, we're here, we're looking at the stars, and we see this light. We saw it when it rose and we followed. And I like also that it's possessive. We have seen his star. Now, that's important. That, that's, that really is important that it's a possessive. Because on the one hand, you can say, well, you know, we saw a star in the heavens, and we deduced that that star was the sign that this was happening. You could say that. Uh, but they didn't. They said, we saw. His star at its rising. And, they, and the his is he who has been born king of the Jews. So they see some kind of miraculous sign in the heavens and they say, oh, this is the star of the one who is going to be born king of the Jews, which of course means what? You know, the one who's born king of the Jews is a reference to whom? Well, yes, it is Jesus, but think of a title for Jesus. Yeah, the Messiah. Like, Jesus is right, you're right, uh, but they don't know his name is Jesus. That's the, I'm just, I'm being nitpicky. Um, and the reason is because they know that there is a coming Messiah, and they know that there are signs that are going to point to the Messiah. They don't know where the Messiah is going to be. Um, some have argued that these people from the East, you know, they have, they have at least the Torah uh, because of Daniel, uh, because of Daniel and, and his, the other faithful Jews that were there, uh, so that there is still kind of a remnant, even long after, of these faithful people who believe in the Torah out in the East. Which is an interesting thing in and of itself, right? Because are they of the children of Israel? Are they, uh, are they Israelites? No, they're not. But this is why John the baptizer says, well, the Lord could raise up children of Israel from these stones. It's not your bloodline that matters. The Christ came from the lineage of Rahab the harlot. That should tell you a little something, okay? Um, so, yeah, they come from the east. They, but there's this argument that says, eh, they probably didn't know the, that other prophecy from Malachi that said... That he would be born in Bethlehem. Um, And so they, you know, from that distance, if they didn't know it was Bethlehem, from that distance, Bethlehem and Jerusalem are very close. In fact, nowadays, Bethlehem is basically just a suburb of Jerusalem. Um, So you wouldn't really be able to tell from far away because they're so close. So they go to Jerusalem. Why? Yeah, that's where the king is. If there's gonna be a king, that king's gonna be in Jerusalem. You can't tell that it's Bethlehem from that far away, so it leads them and they go to Jerusalem because that's their, well, that has to be. That's where a king would be, right? Jerusalem. And then they find out, no, actually it's Bethlehem. Well, it's so close. You can walk there in a day. Less than a day, so close, okay? So those are some, just some really neat things. They saw his star at its rising. Um, and of course, you know, that's what the ESV says, that's what the ESV says? hey, cool, that, there's points for the ESV then. Uh, the ESV is a fine translation, again, it's, it's, it's in the top five translations that I would recommend to people. My personal preference is for the New King James, I've found little things that I personally don't like as much in the ESV, but every now and then, see, something like this pops up and you go, yes! Good. That's, I think that's a better translation, at its rising. I think that's really nice, because then it also implies this. One day it was not there, and then one day it was. Uh, we saw it at its rising, like a flare. I mean, that's kind of cool to think about. Ooh, let's look at, oh, look at that. Ooh. Hey, the king's born. All right, so let's, we're going to jump over to Exodus here now. Exodus chapter 13. That's the end of Exodus 13. Oh, so they're departing from Egypt. Very end here. So they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. Uh, that was verse 20, the, the very end of Exodus chapter 13. So it's they're getting ready to cross the Red Sea. Um, they've left Egypt. They're in between Egypt and the Red Sea, running away from Pharaoh. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night... He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Why does this matter? I mean, with reference to what we're talking about right now. Another example of a light. Okay, sure, another example of a light. This one's, this one's particular uh, because of the fire. Uh, that the Lord chooses fire as a sign of his presence at night. There's There's a lot of talk about fire. Can you think of some? Okay, the burning bush, yeah, divine fire. Fire is often a sign of the Holy Spirit, which is why there's one New Testament thing. Yeah, Pentecost, tongues of flame, the working of the Spirit. Here's one you don't probably remember. Nadab and Abihu. Remember those boys? Oh, good old Nadab and (laughs) Abihu. See, this is another one of those Sunday school stories that you don't actually learn in Sunday school because it's not a nice story. Nadab and Abihu are the sons of Aaron. And the Lord says, this is the tabernacle, this is the Holy of Holies. I will be the one to provide the fire. Why? Because the fire is the Lord. So he says, my fire is the holy fire. I will be the one who is in charge of that. And Nadab and Abai who decide that they're going to innovate. Oh, we don't really want to wait for the Lord's fire. We'll bring our own fire in. So they took their own fire in. And this is why, this is why translations matter. And this is why I like the New King James and the King James, kind, I like the way the, the language works. Because in those translations, In many translations, the fire is called unlawful. The fire they were not supposed to be. Unlawful. But that's not very exciting. It doesn't sound fun. It's just unlawful. Mm -mm. Shouldn't have done that. But the other translation is profane. (laughs) Profane. And I love that. What kind of fire did they bring in? They brought in profane fire. Wicked fire, disgraceful fire, blasphemous fire, because he said, our fire is better than the Lord's fire. And then they were swallowed up by the Lord's fire. <laughs> yep, the end. A lot of the Old Testament stories don't have happy endings. Um, Yes, so fire, that matters. The the Lord is fire. The Lord is in the bush. He speaks from the flame. The Lord speaks from the tongues of flame on the apostles' head by the working of the Spirit through the mouths of the the apostles. You know, if there ever was a nice image that talked about how the Lord works through means, specifically the means of his divine office, um, Pentecost is it. Because the men are speaking in languages they don't really know, uh, and they're proclaiming the gospel of Christ. They are the means through which the Lord works. They have the working of the Spirit in them to accomplish the Lord's work. The man doesn't matter. It's the office that matters because the Lord does his work through the office. Boy, what a great image, right? So this, this idea of the fire matters, uh, and also in terms of the, um, the being led by a star, because it guides them, okay? Uh, Verse nine of Matthew chapter two, when they heard the king that is Herod, when he he sets up his scheme, behold, uh, and they departed, and behold the star which they had seen in the east at its rising went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. See, now this alone should be something that indicates it isn't just any kind of astrological event, again, that the whole Bethlehem star phenomenon that happened a while ago, that's great. If you've got a telescope and if you love planets and astrological events, fantastic. Look at that stuff. Because when it happens, uh, when it happens so rarely, I mean, take it in. You are somebody who gets to enjoy that when many people don't. So enjoy it. But what I would encourage you not to do is to think that that is 100% 100% exactly the thing that happened in the time of Bethlehem. And this passage right here is one of my really big reasons why I don't think that. Because it led them. And there you have a parallel with the Israelites being led in the wilderness in Exodus. They're being led out of bondage and they're being led into the promised land I mean look at how wonderful the parallel is too because now you have these Gentiles from the East and they are Gentiles even if they believe the Torah they come from the East they are following this flaming light that appeared that nobody else saw because he talked to the king or they talked to the king and the king said star star what star I didn't hear about any star and he calls his wise men, and they go, oh, I, don't know, I don't know what star. They say, well, what does the prophet say? Well, the prophet says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, so if you guys see a star, maybe that's where it is. Okay? But nobody sees the star except these magi. At least it doesn't record that anybody else saw it. And it leads them. So you have Gentiles from the east that are being led by his star, to the Messiah, and the Messiah has come as the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, to lead his people away from bondage and into the Promised Land. And he does it in his flesh and blood. They're being led away, away from sin and death, and this bondage to it, to that house in Bethlehem where they see this child in the flesh. I mean, that's an exodus right there. And, and, and then it makes you think of the transfiguration, too, because Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus about what? As Luke is the one that records this, what they're actually talking about. His exodus. His exodus. It, it, it's just miraculous the way that all of this stuff ties together. I don't... I don't know how you can read the Bible and and think that it's just some dry, dusty pagan or you know zealot tome. I mean, it's beautiful how everything ties together here. So that's uh, that's, that's that there. We need to do look at something else really quickly here in the Book of Numbers. Numbers chapter twenty-four. <laughs> 24. Numbers chapter 24. We'll look at verse 17 here. Do you know what the context is here of Numbers chapter 24? We're about to look at a prophecy. This is not a book of the prophets. It's a character in the book of Numbers who's making a prophecy. This guy is really only well-known because of something that happened to him. He is a mercenary prophet that Balak, the king of the Midianites, or Moabites, hired to go put a curse on the Israelites. And uh, the Lord told this prophet, hey, you better not go do that. And he said, okay, I won't. And then he went to do it. And uh, the Lord appeared before him. And his donkey talked to him. Balaam, his donkey talked to him. His donkey stopped because there was nowhere for it to go because it was a narrow passage. And the angel of the Lord, which is Christ, by the way, anytime it's the angel of the Lord, that's Christ. The glory of the Lord. Jesus Christ himself stood there blocking the way and Balaam didn't see it, only the donkey did and the donkey would not go. And uh, so he got off his donkey and started beating his donkey, and his donkey just started talking. The Lord opened up the donkey's mouth. and Hey, why are you beating me? When have I ever not served you well? And the best part of that whole thing is that he talks back to the donkey like, oh, yeah, you know this happens all the time. Why are you beating me? Well, because you've been a bad donkey, but I didn't do anything. Well, uh, uh, and they just have this conversation as if, well, you know, that, <laughs> that old donkey, always running her mouth. So that's really great, Um, and the Lord does not permit him to curse the Israelites, obviously, because he made a promise to Israel, Uh, but instead he uses this mercenary prophet to bless Israel, and in the process of blessing Israel, uh, he gives prophecies of the Messiah who is to come. And this is definitely something that those Eastern Magi would have known. Here it is, I see him, the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Excuse me. <clears throat> so a scepter, that just means, the, you know, if a scepter comes, then who comes with the scepter? Yeah, the king. Who, so it's not just, you know, it's not just the instrument, it's who, the one who holds the instrument as well. But the star is a person. This is what's so cool, the star is a person. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, and maybe your Bible has that capitalized. Mine does, and I think it should be. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. This idea of light and the Lord using light and leading by light and Jesus Christ being light, the light of the world, that darkness cannot overcome or that, dar- that is not comprehended by the darkness. The darkness has no ability to stand in the path of this light. Hey, oh boy, it's just great. Right, and then finally, let's look at Revelation. Everybody's favorite book. Revelation chapter 22. It's the very last chapter. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Christ is himself the bright and morning star. I think think you have to understand this star as being something more than some astrological event. It it has to be a a divine and miraculous, mysterious event worked by the hand of the Lord as he has done in in various sundry ways in the past. And does again surrounding the birth of Christ. There's, there's too much of this that all ties together and too many theological implications just to let it go and say, well, you know, it was just a planet or a reflecting light. That stuff's cool. But the Lord making a miraculous thing happen is kind of more cool, I think. And it also ties in with the crucifixion because what happens at the crucifixion? Yeah, it gets dark. What are the theological implications of darkness at the crucifixion? you can going to say, well, it uh, was an eclipse. Well, OK. But then, then you're just being boring. Be fun. Have an adventure with it. What are the the implications? Oh, well, the Lord is the creator of the world, so he can make an eclipse when he wants to. Well, sure. I'm not saying it wasn't an eclipse, but there's a a deeper meaning here. You look beyond that. What's the theological implication of darkness at the crucifixion? The light of the world went out. Yes, that the light of the world is dead that the light of the world dies and the world is plunged into darkness. I mean, this ties into that thing about creation I was telling you, that the, that the sun is not created before all the things that thrive on the sunlight are made. How do they subsist? Because of the light of God. And that light of creation is extinguished. Uh, that's the theological implication, that, that the, light, the light is swallowed up and then three days later is barfed back out. I like that language because it's kind of coarse and I don't want you to think that the story of Jonah is one that was, you know, the f- listen, a massive deep-dwelling fish that's big enough to swallow a man doesn't come onto the shore and then spit him out daintily. Okay? It's, he's, he's sick. He vomits this man out, which is kind of like the last little bit of punishment for Jonah. Not only did I have to sit in this whale's stomach now, I was vomited up out of it. But... Um, Christ is the same way. Death thinks it has a real nice treat when it gets to swallow up Christ, the light of the world. And it doesn't. It actually, Christ makes death very ill. And death doesn't spit him out because he tastes bad. Like, if you watch a lot of nature documentaries, you know, there are those The monarch butterflies, they taste real bad because of the milkweed that they eat, and you watch the birds. A bird only ever has to eat one monarch butterfly to know never to touch those things again. You know, they're spitting it out. Never, never again. It's not that. Death doesn't take a bite of Jesus and go, ooh, that was not very nice. I maybe just won't do that again. I'll stick with, with my usual diet. No, it swallows him up whole like that fish swallowing up the prophet and it makes it sick. And it just barfs Jesus up out of the tomb. It can't hold on to him. It can't hold on to its stomach. In fact, all of Jesus' people that he had swallowed up, that death had swallowed up before, everybody, Christ is just like the last. It's like that, um, I guess I'm showing you my kind of lowbrow humor here. It's like that Monty Python sketch where the guy eats his... He eats his dinner, and the waiter comes in, hey, care for an after-dinner mint? He says, oh, no, really, I couldn't, I couldn't. Oh, just one mint, and he eats it, and he you know, blows up. Well, that's, that's kind of like, that's what death does. It. Oh, here's Jesus on the cross. Oh, no, really, I, I'm pretty full. I've, got, I've swallowed up a lot of people. I really don't have room for that. No, 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 but this is, this is the light of the world, the Son of God. You know, don't you want that? That's like the cherry on top for you. Well, if you insist. Ah. And then it just can't keep anybody else down. Language is so important. Okay, let's learn a hymn. Isn't this fun? I love this class. This is so much fun. All right, this is an this is your bulletin insert. I'm just going to sing the first stanza because we don't have time for me to sing the melody, and then the stanza. So you just. Just listen. I trust, O Christ, in you alone. No earthly hope avails me. You will not see me overthrown when Satan's host assails me. No human strength, no earthly power can see me through the evil hour, for you alone my strength renew. I cry to you. I trust, O Lord, your promise true. Next two stanzas. My sin and guilt are plaguing me. O grant me true contrition. And by your death upon the tree, your pardon and remission before the Father's throne above, recall your matchless deed of love, that he may lift my dreadful load. O Son of God, I plead the grace your death bestowed, Confirm in us your gospel, Lord, your promise of salvation, and make us long to and follow our vocation to spend our lives in love for you and show your love in all we do. And then at last, when death shall loom, oh, save your come and bear your loved one safely home. Okay, good, yeah. You are my only hope. <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll see you at the altar.